Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. We are um, beginning the book of James, and um, I'm excited about that. Uh, I was toying with the idea of having James read James. He may do that sometime uh, into the future. Um, But we are reading from the ESV. Um, If you don't have one of those little James booklets with the the journal in them, feel free to go grab one. I'm going to start from chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, can I get an amen, and withers the grass, its flowers its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change or shadow of turning, is another translation. Who who is this James fellow? Well, James is, uh, well, was the half-brother of Jesus. The thing about James that we know about him is that at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, that he was not a follower or a disciple of Jesus. In fact, he was part of this kind of posse of Jesus' brothers and sisters and mothers that were trying to rescue Jesus from these awkward situations. You know, Jesus, your, your brothers and your mother are here. What, what are you doing? And In fact, at the crucifixion, when Jesus was giving care of his mother, uh, he didn't give care of his mother to his brothers, which would have been what was most culturally appropriate. He gave care of his mother to John the disciple, most likely because at that stage, none of uh, Jesus' half-brothers were believers. Uh, The Gospel of John actually tells us that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. And yet James starts this book in a very humble way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. James became a leader of the church in probably the mid-40s AD, and he became a peacemaker of the church in Jerusalem. And that was very necessary. And as we go through James, you're going to see the pretty clear connections on the tongue and wisdom and peacemaking and, and the kinds of things that James would have needed to have in order to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. 
James's life was ended when he was called to the, uh, the pinnacle of the temple. And as he stood at the pinnacle of the temple, they threw him off the temple. He landed on the ground, did not die. Someone picked up a fuller's club, which is basically like a flat baseball bat, and clubbed him to death. That's how James's life ended. He was also known as Old Camel Knees. And he was known as that because he had the knees of a camel because he spent so much time on his knees praying for others. So quite an amazing man. And so we're going to be looking at how the Holy Spirit used him and his personality and what he was going through to be able to speak to us now. Who is he writing to? Well, James is writing to what are known as Jewish Christians that have been scattered everywhere. That's what the dispersion means. There was a persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem. And so Jewish Christians were scattered to all uh, parts of the then known world. And the book of Acts tells us that these Jewish Christians were not only scattered wide and broad, but when they preached the gospel, they only preached the gospel to Jewish believers. And we'll see how that becomes important a little bit later on when James has to deal with some controversies about whether Gentile believers needed to be circumcised, whether they needed to follow issues of the law, whether becoming a follower of Jesus meant becoming Jewish. And ultimately, we see what the outcome of that was in James 15. Why is he writing this book? Well, he's writing this book because the problems that James is addressing are basically the outcomes of immature Christianity. Now, James is not a book uh, that maybe we're used to in other New Testament epistles, which are called letters, where there is a problem and someone writes to one of the leaders of the church, and then he responds. And, and we'll see New Testament books like that where, where Paul says, now about marriage. So obviously someone's asked him a question about marriage. Now about giving, et cetera, et cetera. The, James is not doing that. It's not written to a specific person. It's not written to a specific church. In fact, the book of James doesn't even really tell us how to become followers of the way. Uh, the book of James is simply this, what a follower of the way looks like. And what he is trying to communicate is that if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of the way, if you call yourself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is what you will look like. James uh, um, has the highest number of imperatives in a New Testament book. And an imperative is don't do this, do that, don't do this do that. And it's also one of the shortest books. So you can see even from verse 2 where he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes right into it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It reminds us of the book of Proverbs because of the variety and seemingly disconnected nature of all of these subjects. There are few transitions that we can see. So sometimes you'll see in a letter where Paul writes and, and he'll talk about a theology of God and how to practically implement this. It kind of looks like James is a little like me in terms of like ADD. And now this and now that and now the other thing. Um, but it's still important. Uh, Grace has put up some, uh, um, some pretty abstract uh, symbols in terms of some of the subjects that we're going to be covering in James. And so we're going to be looking at trials this morning. We're also going to be looking at when the next one comes up. We're going to be looking at, at wealth. We, we can keep going with these. We're going to be looking at humility, at the tongue, at prayer, and at wisdom. 
And so one of the challenges you have as you preach James is trying to get to a place of actually saying, how can I, how can I bring some central theme in all of this? The central theme of James is, is basically what Jesus said. You will know a tree by its fruit. It says, if you call yourself a follower of the way, if you call yourself a Christian, then this is what your life will look like. This is what your words will look like. This is what your actions will look like. This is how you know that you are a follower of the way. You good, Enid? Thumbs up. She's okay. Okay. Good. Um, how many of you have heard sports stars and movie stars when they get caught doing something pretty despicable? Um, and you know ordinarily they wouldn't have apologized on their own, but now they're caught. One of the most interesting phrases I've heard is this phrase, that's not me. Have you, have you guys heard that? Have you guys heard someone come up and, and give this what they think is an apology, but they say, that's not me? And I'm sitting listening, thinking to myself, that is exactly you. You did that. And you got caught, and now you're trying to find a way in which you want to divert attention. And what you're wanting us to believe is that the person that did this despicable thing is not the person that is currently talking now. And the book of James is basically saying, you are what you do, what you say, what you don't do, how you spend your money, how you treat people. You are what you do. And that's an important thing to recognize. I can say that I'm a biker. And, and I don't mean biker like on a bike, like uh, on a mountain bike. That, that'd be a little too hard to believe. Because I have. I have been on a bike. And I have done the Fulton Loop. And I have even bought those very embarrassing tight little shorts. Never worn them outside. Always covered them with that. But I cannot call myself a biker. Because I don't do it often enough for it to become part of my identity. And so what James is saying is, let's look at your life and see whether this is part of who you are. So this morning, we're going to look at the certainty and purpose of trials, the need for wisdom, and the danger of double-mindedness. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, Another word for that is perseverance or patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect or finish its work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And perfect and complete is also mature. So this is not, bless you, this is not unique to James. In fact, the idea of the followers of Jesus going through trials, trouble, temptation, and pain was something that Jesus consistently warned his followers about. It's a natural state for a follower of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus wraps up the idea of facing trials and temptation and suffering and pain in the metaphor of all of us carrying our cross. And we covered that about a month ago. And it's not a case of if. It is a case of when. So in James, he's not talking about, now, if, this out, if there's an outside chance of this happening, uh, watch out for this. No, he's, he's saying when. In fact, Peter, when he's writing to a persecuted church, says to them, don't be surprised uh, when these things happen to you. And so one of the first things that we've got to realize is that trials, temptation, pain, and suffering are a certainty for all of us 
It actually doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus, but if you are a follower of Jesus, they are more certain because there are other angles from which the persecution, the trouble, and the trial will come from. Some of the trials are ordinary in the way in which we experience, regardless of our status before our king. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you are, are saved or not. There's, if, if, there's, if there's a hurricane or if there's an earthquake, there's a trial that everyone w- would experience. This is because we live in a fallen world. But, but I would want to differentiate between the idea of a trial and persecution. And I would say that a trial is this. A trial is something that, um, that is an internal struggle that is brought about by the tension of wanting to live as a Jesus follower. So a trial is kind of an internal struggle that that you are feeling because the world is telling you to live in a specific way and you are choosing not to live in that way because you are following Jesus. So an example would be the way in which you spend your money. The world tells you, you know what I mean, go and uh, participate in retail therapy and make yourself feel better by that. And, and the Word of God says, be generous. The Word of God says, look for opportunities to give away, those kinds of things. And the struggle in doing that, because it's not necessarily a sin struggle, but the struggle in, in wanting to live in a way that is in line with a follower of Jesus is what I would consider a trial. Now, persecution is what I would say would be an external force acting on you because you want to be a follower of Jesus. So a trial is like an internal kind of, um, uh, an internal struggle, whereas persecution is an outside force that is attacking you for wanting to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. And as Amanda said earlier, we don't know much about this. Um, In the context of our Western world, we don't know much about this, but in Africa and in India and in China, there are places where your access to food, where physical safety, where death, where maiming, where exclusion of the community is a direct result of you wanting to be a follower of the way. And so it's important for us to be able to differentiate trial and persecution um, because the way in which we respond, and we'll get back, we'll get to this a little later, is, is different for those two things. What trials do is that they purify, they steady, and they reveal. Now, they purify our faith. And, and Peter tells us this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Peter says that, that a trial acts um, like a furnace. And what it does is it burns up all of the material that is not precious so that at the end of it, what will remain is your precious faith, which gives glory to Jesus. But what trials do, and we'll see this, and we've probably noticed this in our lives, is that trials reveal what we really believe about God and what we really believe about ourselves. What we really believe about God is the nature of God, His character and His ability, and what we believe about ourselves, what I deserve, uh, what, what should come to me, what I should not be experiencing. Spurgeon says that trials teach us what we are because they dig up the soil And they let us know what we are made of. Trials reveal our unhealthy attachments. Attachments to people, attachments to things, attachments to status, even attachments to dreams. One day I'll be doing this. What Scripture tells us, Jesus, James, Peter, the Holy Spirit is telling us through all this is don't waste your time asking the question, why is this happening to me? Because do you know what the answer will be? Why not? 
Why would it not be happening to you? Because this is something that as a follower of Jesus, every single person is going to encounter. Rather, ask the question, what are you exposing in me? God, what are you doing? What are you trying to teach me? Instead of trying to find a way out of this time of trial and suffering or persecution, one of the things we should be asking for is, God, show me the path through the suffering and partner with me as I participate in it. So it purifies, it reveals, it also steadies. Persecution and trial and suffering actually reduces our anxiety. Now you're like, what? Hang on. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, it reduces our anxiety because anxiety is heightened by the expectation of a situation. But actually peace comes once you've gone through that trial and you can trust that even though it was difficult and even though it was hard, you are still okay. So think of the first time that you were rejected. Think of the first time that you were betrayed. Think of the the first time that you were were hurt or, or that you were excluded or that you were mocked. Now, when you face those things, there's a recognition that actually I've been through this. I I know what to expect. I I don't want to invite it because it wasn't kind, but the reality of knowing that persecution will hit is that it lowers my level of anxiety because I'm not sitting there, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? We know it's going to happen. So what we can do is actually use our energy to say, oh God, my Father, prepare me for when this happens. I have a saying, and I've, I've used this saying before, but I, I think every young man between the ages of 12 and 16 needs to be punched in the face, okay? Now, for two reasons. One, because they generally have done something to deserve it, okay? But number two, once you've been punched in the face, it's not that bad. So if people that have not been punched in the face are like thinking, oh, I don't want to be punched in the face. It's actually not that bad. Once you've been punched in the face once, you're like, yeah, I know what could happen. I could be punched in the face, but I've been punched in the face before and it's not that bad. What is actually worse is punching someone in the face because no one tells you how much it hurts when you punch someone in the face. But that's, that's another story. Okay. Francis, carry on. Trials produce in us the ability for God to purify, reveal, and steady us, but it also produces a robustness in our faith. Is that we are not tossed to and fro. It produces a humility in us because for people like me, when you realize that trials and persecution are a way of reminding you that you are not in control, that you're able to humble yourself under God's mighty hand, it produces a deeper dependence on God. Because the control freak tries to avoid um, the idea of suffering or persecution or plan enough so that that won't happen. But actually what God is saying is, I want to grow your dependence on me so that when this happens, you are able to come and I'm able to deal with that. And ultimately, it brings us a deep sense of peace because we know. And, and that's why community and a community of faith and church is so important. When you look around and you see the kinds of things that men and women have been through and you see how their faith is more robust and you see how they love Jesus more and you see how dependent and humble they are and ultimately peaceful they are, what it does is it gives us a sense of hope as we walk into persecution and trial and suffering. You are more resilient than you know, and your faith is more sturdy than you know. Like I sound like this motivational guy, right? But you know what? Because it has nothing to do with you. You are more resilient than you know because the Spirit of God that is Jesus from the dead is in you. You are more 
faithful than you know because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for you. You are more faithful and resilient than you realize when you understand where the source of your strength is and it's not an internal strength. Why do we need wisdom? Verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. That can also be translated, you know, without favoritism. And, and favoritism is a, is a, a theme throughout, throughout James. Verse 7, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Um, and Double-minded man is unique to James, but throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, we hear this term of a divided heart. And so it's, it's this idea of trying to straddle both things. It's like, I know that God is faithful, but I've actually got to make sure that I take care of the situation. And so what, what James is saying is that we need wisdom to be able to do two things. One, to be able to answer the question, is this a trial or a temptation? And we need the wisdom to be able to ask, do I endure or do I escape? So is this a trial or temptation? This is critical. And this is where we need the wisdom of God. Because a trial cannot be avoided. A temptation must be avoided. And so the, the difference between being able to identify whether you are in the, in the midst of a trial or whether you are being tempted is critical because the way in which we access help from God is different. I, I, am, I don't have a sweet tooth. And in fact, like Trenton has started working for Crumble. So all of you, I'm sure, are going to go and see if you can get like uh, uh, discounts or whatever. But those kinds of things, they were sitting, we were having lunch yesterday, and I was like, ooh, the peanut butter and jelly cookie is coming out. And uh, the, I don't know, whatever. And they were all ooing and aahing and like just not tempted by those things at all. Can't even remember why I was telling you this story. Oh, but, but in the middle of the night when I can't sleep and I'm just walking around in a haze, whatever is in front of me, I will eat. And I'll wake up with like the, the craziest stomach ache and, I, and I'll eat that. And so what I do is I, I, I say that I'm under a trial because Karen is the one that bought these things. And so she, she brings this evil into our house. And, and what she does is she, she puts it in the cupboard with a big sign that says, no, yeah. So, so the way that I deal with temptation is I, I flip it to a trial and I basically say, if you don't bring this into the house, then I won't be tempted. And I think I'm 100% well kind of within my rights because I've never woken up and said, I want to go to the store and buy something. But if it's there... Dude, I will flatten a whole bar of chocolate just by myself. And ordinarily, I'm not even interested. But the way in which we deal with trial or temptation, it confuses the amount of help that we need from God. Is this something I need to endure? Is this something I need to overcome, resist, or flee? Am I blaming someone for something? The devil tempts us and sends us trouble because he hates us. God allows this. Because he loves us. The devil partners with our flesh and the world. And God partners with the finished work of Christ the Son. And the present and active comfort and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Temptations affect and entice people differently. It's like I said, you know. Um, it depends on what gender you are. It depends on your age. It, it depends on your personality. 
And one of my greatest temptations is not necessarily sins of the flesh in terms of sexuality, etc. One of my greatest temptations from James is the tongue. It's like, well, why would I not say that? It's clever. It kind of hurts a little bit, and I'm sure they'll remember it, you know. Why would I not say that? I was thinking the other day about the situations in our life where people have given us grace. And the most profound situations are not when people are saying, Nick, I'm going to give you grace right now for what you've said. The most profound situations of grace is when they give me grace and I don't even realize that I've received it. And so when I say something stupid, they give me the benefit of the doubt. The temptation journey has specific mile markers. We are tempted, we are lured, we are enticed. We give in to our desire, see, uh, sin is conceived and it leads birth, to, sorry, and it gives birth to death. Now, does that mean that you're actually going to die? No, probably not. But what he's more talking about is the death of your conscience. And so what happens is as we give in to temptations, so in other words, let's say that we are, we, we have, I'm trying to think of an example. Let's say that I have a propensity to be lazy. Now, if I give in to that temptation and give in to that temptation and give in to that temptation, what happens is my conscience will die and I will become a lazy person. So it won't just be that I battle with laziness. It'll become part of my identity. And that's what God is trying to prevent in us. That is why it's important when we understand that we're going through trials, there's one way of dealing with things, and then we're going through temptations, we flee. The Bible says clearly, when you go through temptation, don't be lured, don't desire. If you understand that, turn around and flee. Whereas a trial is something we look at head on and walk through. I know that in my life, I'm much more susceptible to temptation when I've been weighed down by the issue of trials. So when I'm tired or angry or when I feel underappreciated, those are the times where I go before God and I say to him, God, I'm tired and I'm angry and I feel underappreciated. Please protect me because I don't know that I have what it takes to resist temptation right now. And so it's important to be able to recognize that because like, like for me in a time of trial, when I recognize that, I, 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 that I'm in a time of trial, I'm able to say, and because I'm in a time of trial, I'm probably more open to temptation. So let's watch that. Do I endure or escape? As I said, scripture tells us to flee temptation, but trials are more complex. We need to access the wisdom of God through prayer, through God's word, through going to our leaders in the context of the community and actually saying, what do I do here? An example, we had someone who was in an incredibly toxic work environment. And so you can call that a trial, and it is. There's no issue of sin that this person was participating in. Um, and so he has two options. The one option is that he, he can stay in that environment, um, and he can model what a Christ-like approach is, or he can leave that environment. Now, there isn't just one answer. And that's why, that's why James tells us we need wisdom to be able to do that. As it turns out, this person felt through the Holy Spirit, actually, I feel like I need to stay in this environment. We need the wisdom to be able to know whether we need to endure or whether we need to adjust the situation. And this is important because Paul tells us in other letters that in the context, for example, of slavery, he says, hey, if you are a slave and you can gain your freedom, what does he say? 
do it. Do it. If you're in a situation where you can gain your freedom or if you're in a trial where you can minimize that, then do it. But you have to come before the Father and actually say, what do I need to do in this situation? Because there isn't a one-size-fits-all. We cannot assume that every trial has to be endured, especially when it comes to the engagement with other people in order to avoid pain. Remember, the issue is not how much pain I can stand because I'm not more to God, the more pain I can stand. The issue is what is God doing in my life in that moment and how do I respond to that? Now, the problem in our Western culture is this, is that we've been conditioned in our culture that any kind of suffering or trial is negative and therefore I robotically move away from that. And so what I want to present this morning is saying when you're in a context of suffering or trial, ask God the question, is this something, Father, that you are giving me the grace to endure? Or is this something that you are giving me the opportunity to get out of? Does that make sense? Karen uh, is a doula, and a doula is like a birth coach. And she said to me that there are four questions that are critical uh, when a woman is going through an incredibly difficult labor. One of them is, what is this for? So there's a sense in, 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 in which Karen is reminding her, what is this for? Is this normal? Is the kind of pain that I'm feeling, is the kind of, uh, is this normal? Will it end? Will this pain end? And is it worth it? And so when Karen sits with a woman that's in labor and reminds her that this pain is so that you are able to see your child. This pain is so that you are able to bring this life and then he or she is going to take a breath. This is what that is for. Is this normal? Unfortunately, absolutely normal. Gabby, Stephanie, absolutely normal. Severe amounts of pain. Will it end? Yes, it will end. Yes, the pain will end. Is it worth it, mothers and fathers? It is worth it. Okay, trial's most dangerous feature is that it makes you double-minded about God. God is mean. He's withholding. He's distant. He's unloving. He's not powerful. Now, James tells us don't be double-minded because what is being questioned here is the character of God, that God is in control. Whoa. That this trial and this suffering will overcome me in some way. Or that this trial and this suffering defines me. That God has forgotten me. That God is angry with me. When, when I'm double-minded, I'm doubting that God will give me the wisdom to deal with a difficult situation. When I'm doubting or double-minded, I'm doubting that God is able to satisfy me. And that's where temptation becomes an even greater difficulty. Because if I don't believe that God can satisfy me, then I'm more prone to participating in temptation. And then being double-minded also means that I question whether God is present with me in the midst of trial and suffering. If we are gripped with a conviction that God is good and that He is good to us, then the power of temptation is broken. If we are convinced that God is good and good to us, then the power of temptation is broken. Because why? Verse 17 says, God does desire to give us good things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
I want to say this. You don't deserve pain. You don't deserve trial. You don't deserve suffering. There's a difference between knowing that you will experiencing it, that, that you will experience it, and being in a posture where you feel like you deserve it. That is demonic. We had an interaction with a young woman. She, she was in her 20s. She was married and had had at least two miscarriages. And what no one knew, not, not her husband, not her family, not anyone knew, is that she had had an abortion when she was 16 or 17. And so as she walked through these miscarriages, what had happened is her mind had become shaped, and this is what she believed. You deserve this. This is payback for what you did. And we were on the phone with her, and I'll remember both the anger that I felt and the pain that Karen felt, and we literally had to speak words of life and actually take command over lying spirits and say, you do not deserve this. Because as a Christ follower, everything that you have done is forgiven. There are consequences that we need to walk through, but this is not because of what you've experienced. You do not deserve this trial, this pain, and this suffering. Now, the joy is that she has had multiple children. That isn't the ultimate joy, though. The joy is that she was set free in that moment and refused to believe that she deserved that. And just like we need to be in a posture of understanding that we don't deserve pain, we also need to understand that there is nothing in Scripture that tells us that we deserve the perfect life. And so that's why we need wisdom. That's why we have to ensure that we are not double-minded about who God is. Finally, and Lisa, you can come up. We need to prepare for trials. We need to anticipate suffering so that we are not surprised. We need to be able to posture ourselves, which is why time in His Word time in prayer, even worshiping this morning. I mean, Amanda's word um, is, is critical in this. Last week, Brad shared from another letter to another church, and Amanda shared the whole idea of what it means to suffer. Throughout Scripture, the idea of suffering and trial is present. God is in control, and He is actively present, verse 6 tells us. Verse 9 tells us that our life is fleeting, so we're here today, gone tomorrow. If that is the case, and if our entire lives are like a flower that wilts because of the sun, then this too is temporary. So most people don't think the idea that your life is just a vapor is something that's encouraging. But if your life is a vapor, guess what? This portion of your life that you think is going to last forever is also just temporary. And there is a reward for steadfastness. Can we be a people that adjust our posture and ask God for the grace to take on trial and temptation with joy and not resentment and not resignation or this white-knuckled endurance? I told you the story before about, about roller coasters. And Karen hates roller coasters. I love roller coasters. I, I want to be on a roller coaster where you feel like you could die. Like if something went wrong, you could die. Like this is the edge 
of like fun and ending my life right, right here. Like I want to feel my spine compressed as you hit the bottom of the, of the thing. And I'm there in the ups and downs and I'm hooting and I'm hollering and poor Karen, when I've managed to get her on these things, has gone into her quiet place. She's not screaming. She's just turned in on herself and she's just gripping with a white knuckled endurance that this will be over. And what I'm saying is, can we posture ourselves to count it all joy, knowing that God is present, knowing that we are not taken by surprise? That remember, we've said this before as a community, it's okay when you've hurt me, that's not okay, but I forgive you. Can we also be a people that say, right now I'm not okay, but I will be? Because I know the kind of God that I serve, and I know that this is only temporary. We don't rejoice in the trial. That's just weird. I'm not happy that this is happening, but I'm happy that God is present, that God is shaping something in me, that He will never leave me, and that this is temporary. Trials are hard, and we are rejoicing that no matter what the trial brings, my God is present, He is faithful, He is loving, and He is able, because Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And boy, would it have been nice if he ended right there. But he didn't end right there. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Our joy, mercy, commons rests on the willing sufferings of Christ. Jesus has rescued us from the foulest form of suffering, which would be to, to be cast away and separated from God for eternity. He's rescued us from the, the idea of suffering that there would be no way to atone for our sin and there would be no way to be healed from the abuse and shame that others have perpetrated on us. He brings us everlasting joy because it was His joy to endure suffering and pain the cross and death. And because he sits resurrected at the right hand of the Father, it is his joy to walk with us now. As the lines of the song say, there is another in the fire standing next to me. There is another in the waters holding back the sea. And should I ever need reminding of what power set me free, there is a grave that holds no body and that power lives in me. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.